All right, welcome to episode five of the Vinyl Detroit podcast. So I was looking back over the previous episodes, and I just wanted to really share how proud I am of those episodes. If you haven't had the chance to go back and listen to one, two, three, or four, now would be a great time to go back and and give those a listen. So some of the highlights from those episodes include episode one, where I took a really, really deep listen into the Field Mice's Coastal, which is one of my favorite records of all time. Episode three, I spent a great deal of time and had a wonderful conversation with Mark Robinson of Unrest, where we talked about his album and his band's album, Perfect Teeth. So a little bit of background on the interviews you hear on this podcast. Originally, I was just planning on focusing solely on the records that I love and really giving background on the recordings, the artwork, etc. But after hearing that first episode, my friends Mario and Rose said it would be really, really cool to be able to hear from the artists behind the recordings. So I got to thinking, why just focus on the records I love? At that point, I decided to branch out and speak not only to the musicians, but the graphic artists behind the imagery of the albums I love. Then I got the further idea to highlight some of my favorite labels. I look at some record labels almost like a seal of approval in some way. Some of those examples would be like 4AD, Creation, Sub Pop, etc. Which leads me to introduce today's episode. This episode is a total treat for me as I had the incredible opportunity to speak with Claire Wad. For those of you who are not familiar with Claire, she, along with Matt Haynes, formed seminal indie label and my all-time favorite record label, Sarah. Sarah formed in 1987 out of the fanzine scene of the time when Claire moved to Bristol and met Matt, where they exchanged their fanzines. Eventually, through a series of events, Claire and Matt started Sarah with their first single, the excellent, excellent Pristine Christine by the Sea Urchins. Claire and Matt put their heart and soul into each release that they've done, which resulted in a discography of the top quality. They ran the label somewhat like a meritocracy, I would say. So in other words, the bands that wrote and recorded brilliant songs were allowed to keep releasing records, so long as the songs they made were just superb. For those of you who still aren't familiar with Sarah, there's plenty of information online about Sarah's history, which I would definitely urge you to check out. So Sarah ended in 1995, and their ending was really the stuff of legends. Upon releasing 100 singles, a variety of EPs, 10 inches, and LPs, Matt and Claire decided to throw a party and effectively stop the label. While fans of Sarah and the artists experienced a variety of emotions with this decision, it resulted in Sarah ending at its really its triumphant peak. Sarah releases have become highly collectible in the 25 years after its end. Singles routinely go for up to $300 or more online, with some LPs really going for even more. I know for a fact that Matt and Claire are still surprised by this, but really I always felt that it speaks to the quality of the releases on Sarah. Now that you have had a very brief history of Sarah, I would ask you to sit back, relax, and enjoy my discussion with Claire Wad, co-founder of Sarah.
right, we just heard a bit of one of my favorite songs on Sarah Records, which was Christmas by Brighter. Uh, surprisingly, this was one of the first songs I ever heard that really turned me on to the label. And when I was putting this episode together, I just knew it had to be included. So with that, I am beyond excited today to spend some time with Claire Wad, one of the co-founders of Sarah Records. Uh, she's joining me from across the pond over there in, in the UK. And, you know, one thing I would like to say before I get started is thank you. And, you know, Sarah's meant a lot to me over the last 30 plus years. And, and frankly, I find it to be one of the finest independent labels probably ever. Uh, you know, maybe I'm a little biased, but I just, I've, I love it. I, I have, as most of my, my listeners know, and even those that follow me on Instagram, I have all but one Sarah release at this point that I'm still trying to track down. Uh, <laughs> maybe, I, maybe I know somebody now who can help me out. <laughs> uh, but Claire, thanks for joining me. Welcome to the, the podcast. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. And, and well, how can I respond to that intro? Um, wow. Um, but yes, thank you. It's a, um, I'm delighted to be here and uh, speaking to you from across the pond in London. Welcome, welcome. Hopefully the weather's better there than it is here. I'm looking out the window and there's just, there's snow everywhere, which is a little early here for Michigan, but I think we've set a, uh, I don't know if it's a record, but a pretty close record for the amount of snow we've had already. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> it's just about to get dark here and it's gray and it's okay. It was cold yesterday, but it's much, much warmer today. Oh, that's good. That's good. I like, I like the warmth. I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a big winter guy. But, you know, that's what you sign up for when you live in this part of the country <laughs> here in the say, U.S. Have you, have you considered where you live? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so, you know, again, thank you for joining me. Uh, you know, I stated in the intro that both you and Matt Haynes uh, started Sarah in 1987. Uh, you know, you, you both got really involved in the fanzine scene early in that day. I'd like to spend a few minutes and maybe just talk about how you and Matt connected and maybe on a, on a separate note, you know, how the zine culture at that time played into the creation of Sarah. Could you maybe share some of the genesis in those early days? Sure, yes. So, and Matt and I actually got to know each other through fanzines as well. So um, prior to Sarah, I was um, in Yorkshire in the north of England, and I started a fanzine called Kvatch in 1984, blimey, when I was 16. And... I'd done, I don't know, maybe, I think I'd just put the fifth issue of that out as I was leaving school in 1986 and I was moving down to Bristol for university. And Matt was one of the fanzine writers in Bristol doing his fanzine, Are You Scared to Get Happy? And I guess he'd started around about the same time I had. So in advance of moving to Bristol, I wrote to sort of all of the Bristol fanzine writers. <laughs> uh, I think there were about three or four of them. I'm moving to Bristol. Um, could I have a copy of your fanzine? Um, you know, be great to meet up. Basically, just trying to make friends who are into the same sort of music as me, conscious I might not find them among my fellow students. And Matt had sent me his fanzine back um, <laughs> without a great deal of enthusiasm. <laughs> I guess I hadn't sent him any money. I just like, I don't think he was that kind of keen to have my fanzine in return. But um, <laughs> I'd been in Bristol probably a couple of months I think it was in November 86 and I was trying to sell fanzines at a I think of it as a primal screen concert they were actually supporting Julian Cope and tried to sell fanzine to Matt and he said well I've got it already um <laughs> you know and introduced himself and 
and that was how we met. Um, he was a little terse, actually. Um, but <laughs> I was then looking at doing my sixth issue and I was looking at putting a flexi disc with it. And Matt at that point was part of a flexi disc label called Sha La La with some other fanzine writers. So they mm-hmm. did eight flexes, um, Baby Honey fanzine, um, Simply Thrilled fanzine. Um, the others will come to me. Um, so he was kind of an expert on flexi discs as far as I was concerned. And I, I basically walked past his front door to get to, to college. So I was sort of sticking a note through one morning saying, could you give me an idea of how much 1500 flexi discs would weigh and whether or not I can carry them back to Yorkshire on the bus? <laughs> and he opened the front door and uh, said, come in. And, and then was really incredibly helpful about um, getting my flexi discs manufactured and and actually ended up taking the tapes up to London with some of his for me. And I did go and fetch them on the bus. Um, I actually entrusted him with all my cash as well at that point. So I kind of wrote him a check and he said, oh, I will take your money and pay for your flexi discs for you with your money. And in that way that um, you give complete strangers all your money um, that, <laughs> and it worked really well. So we, we completely got to know each other through fanzines and flexes. Um, and then a few months later, we got together as a couple and then really just started talking almost immediately about starting a record label. We were, we had both, both Sha La La, not with Matt's fanzine, but one of the other ones who put out a sea urchins track called Summershine. And I had put out a Sea Urchins track called Cling Film. They were sort of the two tracks on one tape and thankfully we'd pick different ones. Um, so the Sea Urchins were an immediate band which brought us both together. Um, Charlotte Lowe had also put out the Orchids and Matt knew them and they were really wonderful. So we sort of had the first two releases lined up really and, you know, spent the summer working out what sort of record label we wanted to run. And it was very much coming out of the fanzine ethos and, you know, writing to the bands and saying, we're starting a record label, you record for us, so on and so forth. And, and thankfully they both said yes. And um, and it all kind of went from there, really. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow, you know, it, make, it makes you wonder, what if they would have said no? Well, <laughs> I guess we wouldn't <laughs> be speaking now. Because <laughs> I think, I mean, it's funny, because, I mean, we did obviously absolutely want to start a record label, but it was in part driven by the bands who were around at the moment, at, you know, at that point in time who um, we wanted to put out records by. So I guess if they had both said no, I'm sure other bands would have come along, but you, you can't imagine we'd have started a record label at the exact point in time we did. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I have, I have a, you know, I have a question or I have a statement or a question later on regarding that first single. I think it's more of a statement and I guess sure. I'll save that for later. Okay. <laughs> um, I may I may have lifted that from you uh, from the documentary, but I think it really speaks well to that single and really its its role in in really where Sarah went. So, uh, you know, it, it's interesting because you know the fanzine. I, I don't know that that scene would ever happen again with with the internet and the way things are done now. It's 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 all done online, you know, and, and maybe that connection may not have happened. Yeah, it's weird. It's hard. I mean, it it was such a big part of, I think, both of our lives at that point. And the ethos of do it yourself. And, you know, I was 19, for God's sake, but the wow. ethos of, well, I can start a fanzine at 16, you know, I can start a record label. It never really occurred to us we couldn't just decide to do it and then do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you mm-hmm. know, looking back, I don't know the optimism of youth, the arrogance of youth, whatever it is. I think, <laughs> you know, now I'd probably drop a risk register or everything that might go wrong. Um, <laughs> pro, a pro and, and con list. And I would have list. more sense. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, 
but yeah the artwork and the i think the artwork and the ethos was very much coming out of that fanzine culture so a lot of the artwork was on that kind of um you know that high contrast photocopies we were very familiar with paste ups um and i realize i'm talking absolutely gobbledygook to anyone under about um, i'm following along 45 <laughs> um, but we sort of knew how to do artwork in our own kind of slightly scrappy handmade way and mm-hmm. we always wanted it to be as good as possible but we weren't we were starting from the point of view of do it yourself rather than you know buy in design and spend a lot of money so um and that was the way we did fanzines and then that became the way we did the record label as well yeah, no, I, I definitely, you know, I definitely saw that obviously in the earlier releases, but you know, it, it still, it still existed with the inserts and, and all that throughout, you know, all the releases. So, you know, one thing that obviously I'm, I love the label, I love the acts, I've, I'm, I'm really, really invested there, and you know, so I watched the, the the documentary, which I thought was fantastic. I've watched it multiple times, and you know, you mentioned, I think, in the documentary. I believe it was you that brought up the the name Sarah for the label. Was that just a random selection? I, I know there was there was some more some more meaning behind that, but w- would you mind sharing if there is? Yeah, it was. It was really quick, and I, I guess it was a little random. So Matt said, "What should we call it?" And I said, "Sarah," and that was all the discussion there ever was about <laughs> it. I mean, we never kicked around any other ideas or anything at all, and it came from the fact that I'd been reading Jane Austen's. Emma like a few Mm. months earlier and you know if a book can just be called Emma why can't a record label just be called Sarah um and I it's funny I don't recall us really I mean we never thought about pros and cons of it and you know if you made a list of pros and cons now you'd probably start with feminist statement for the pros and then you'd probably start with feminist statement for the cons because I'm sure (laughs) it fed into how much we got beaten up by a very very male very sexist music press mm-hmm. um but i don't think we were we in fact i know we weren't thinking along those lines i guess you don't you know the idea that you're going to do things to avoid getting bullied i think we'd have got bullied regardless but mm-hmm. it probably it probably added to it um <laughs> but i wouldn't change it for the world no. i'd change the bullying i wouldn't change the name of the label <laughs> <laughs> no i would hope not i, I just you know it it's funny because it came out of like you said a, a pretty spontaneous moment but yet it it endured throughout the label and then obviously in the years after as as really the hmm as just the the perfect the perfect name and and it's something that you know if you just started off with something completely different but then at, by 95 when you guys decided to shut it down and and it didn't make sense you know that wasn't the case here at all it, it made sense throughout that entire period so kudos to you i mean it, yeah. it came to you and, and you went with it and i still get called sarah sometimes <laughs> i still answer to it <laughs> you know it's funny you say that because in the early years probably for me you know the late 80s early 90s i i was wondering i'm like is that her name because you didn't have access to all the information like you do today yeah, and i was like of course is, not. is there a sarah <laughs> and it's weird isn't it because would you name a record label after yourself maybe maybe wow. you would i don't know yeah. um we didn't anyway but uh but yeah, and we were always really keen. It was Sarah. It was never meant to be Sarah Records. It was always just meant to be Sarah. But really, you know, we kind of had to give up on that. Really, yeah, so yeah. the checkbook said Sarah Records. Try getting a bank to give you a checkbook that just says Sarah on it. <laughs> and I'm sure the the distributor probably wouldn't have liked it too much either. Probably not. No. <laughs> so you know, you mentioned a little bit ago about 
just the the aesthetic and 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 really the DIY aspect of it. I guess I'd like to ask you maybe a little bit more of a of a broader question in terms of looking at at the axe and and, and with the aesthetic as well. But w when you guys really started out, or or even at what point did you say that you know th there's a creative image here and there's something that that we you know we want to portray, or was it really just hey we love these bands we want to release their their records, kind of like could you talk a little bit about that? So with the bands, it was very much, hey, we love these bands, we want to release this record. And it was, everything was done on a record by record basis. So we never, um, it sounds a little harsh in retrospect, but we never really signed everyone. Mm -hmm. So um, everybody's tenure with the label was really dependent on how good their next song was going to be. <laughs> um, because, uh, because for us, it was really absolutely about, and um, we maintain this, um, others obviously are welcome to disagree, but it was about every single record being absolutely brilliant and you couldn't let yourselves get in the position of, oh, well, this band has become really good friends now and they have gone off the boil and they're not very good, um, mm -hmm. but we'll carry on putting out their, out their records regardless because, you know, it would be kind of mean not to. That that made life very difficult, but it wasn't a route we wanted to go down. We wanted every record to to um, speak for itself. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. in, in terms of the the sort of artwork side. I don't really think we massively had a plan at the start, except that we wanted the label to be sort of clearly defined. And I guess, you know, let's be honest, we're in, in, inspired by creation and, you know, Factory and 4AD and, and Cherry Red and people like that. So we wanted a clear identity for the label and we wanted that identity to be very much wrapped up in us being in Bristol because we we both really really love the city so right from those first records there's a picture of bristol on the labels mm -hmm. um and there's a there's a logo um on the center labels which you know later later we changed and it became that cherries logo later on but um you know things developed as we went along so the first 20 singles for instance have got kind of slightly random pictures of North Bristol on the labels and then then we sort of went into series of 10 and each 10 had a theme but we you know we didn't start out with that idea we just kind of developed the bits of Bristol thing as, as mm -hmm. we went really yeah and I mean and I'm sure you've heard this many times but you know with and, and I, I had a question about this but I cut it out but just you know without Bristol you know would again would obviously you and Matt had had met there but without Bristol I mean would would Sarah have existed you know it's such a part <laughs> of the label which which yeah. is not which is not you know not very common. I mean, labels get associated with different cities and scenes and that, but it was so intertwined. But it's odd in a way because we had been going quite a long time before we had a Bristol act. Mm -hmm. So sort of unlike Factory being associated with Manchester, you know. So Tramway was our first Bristol band, and that was Sarah Forty Three. So we'd probably been going, you know, four years or so at that point. Mm -hmm. um you know when we had bands in australia and the states and a lot in glasgow and um sea urchins are from birmingham so um it's i mean and we did used to get letters from people who obviously thought everybody was from bristol and we all lived in this you know great big house in bristol together and, you know um matt's matt's a londoner i'm from the north in mm -hmm. fact we both live in london now so it was our adopted city and, and we adopted it because we loved it but um yeah i guess um I mean, I guess the label wouldn't have existed. I mean, if I hadn't moved to Bristol, we we wouldn't have started it. So, you know, if Matt hadn't moved to Bristol, so mm -hmm. so. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. I, I told my wife that, you know, we're, we're planning our 25th wedding anniversary. And I told her, because we talked about Europe, and I said, if we're going to the UK, I have to go to Bristol. And she said, wait, where, what, what's Bristol? <laughs> <laughs> I said, no, we're going to, we're going to go and we're going to, we're going to do the whole tour while we're there. Which, well, needless... good choice, but so long as she gets a pick as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She'll probably pick everything but Bristol, you know, she'll have every, all the say in everything else. <laughs> So, you know, while, while we're talking about sleeve design, I, I guess I'd like to know a little bit more about that. So, you know, I know from, from watching the documentary and reading the book Pop Kiss, which is fantastic also, it, it sounded like, like Matt had a lot of early involvement in those, in those sleeves and in that. How much involvement did the, did the bands have in, in really their imagery as well? It really varied band to band, to be honest. Um, so some bands had a really clear idea of what they wanted some bands had a sort of rough idea of what they wanted and some bands didn't really mind what they wanted. Um, some would produce full artwork, you know, paste-ups, all of that. Some would um, send a bit of a sketch. <laughs> so Matt ended up doing, I mean, both Matt and I were involved in the sleeve design for some of the bands, but the way the labour divided up, Matt ended up doing artwork a lot. So he did a lot of the um paste ups and you know at a point where we couldn't really afford typesetting he would do a lot of the um very fine details sort of electroset work and that kind of stuff um and that was really well i suppose he's he's a, he's a much more patient person than i am but also <laughs> i was still at college so he had the time and he had the patience and i guess what it did is save us a lot of money so um but in terms of design where we were involved in design that was probably equally both of us and he did the execution mm -hmm. um i mean one example might be the film mice's emma's house sleeve where they had an idea of what they wanted and sent a really rough sketch um and i i, I don't know if you know it it's a sort of quite um mm -hmm. what would be a good word it's quite a naive drawing of um a woman with a ponytail basically um, mm -hmm. and we had a friend who was good at art and and she finessed the ponytail but Matt basically did the work so um but it was based on you know what they had proposed and what they wanted so hmm. yeah it's interesting because like you said earlier that you know you you really you wanted to be able to show to those that bought the records that there was I guess somewhat of a consistent image, but yet the bands were involved in the design as well. So I, I think it's really neat that there was this collaboration that went on between the acts and the label. Be, I, I'm not really familiar with really how that works. I mean, I, I've, I know a little bit about from, from the shoestrings experience that I had, but it's interesting that that was, that was the case here as well. And I think, you know, inevitably it works well sometimes and less well <laughs> a lot of times, you know, let's be honest. But um <laughs> I mean, I guess probably one of the other things that's key to say is that um, money dictated the designs quite a lot. So we used to allow bands two colours to print in. Mm -hmm. um, and we, um, you know, and again, it doesn't really make much sense in 2021, but back in the day you paid per colour mm -hmm. and you paid more for non-processed colours and full colour printing four colors where we couldn't afford four so we, we we sort of steered people away from photographs quite a lot because we couldn't necessarily get the high quality um screens of the photos mm -hmm. and we didn't want to you know we didn't want to pay for full color so um you know so that took you down a particular 
design direction as well, I think, which took you down the sort of high contrast photocopy route or the um, quite sort of naive artwork type type route, um, mm -hmm. really just trying to make a business work at the same time, I suppose. So Sure, sure. I mean, you, like, like you said in the documentary, I mean, there were there were times where you weren't willing to put the label on the line for something. And, and that's, you know, that's really, that's really part of it is, is watching the cost and making sure that, you know, one release or one sleeve or whatever doesn't, doesn't put you into say what happened to creation with my bloody Valentine, where, you know, the label may not exist after that or well creation did, exactly, but it, it struggled. Yes. Or, or, you know, blue Monday was quite pertinent at the time was, um, where I think the sleeve was so expensive they the more they sold the more money they lost which <laughs> is never a good state to be in and I, and I guess as well linked to that because we wanted to do seven inch singles and because we wanted to very much run a label from the point of view of you know we're fans we buy records what's it like for the buyer so we mm -hmm. wanted to make everything affordable um you know that meant then you weren't earning that much money so you had to make sure you weren't spending that much money mm -hmm. yeah i'm sure that i'm sure that accounting background came in handy <laughs> well to be fair i didn't have it then but, oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh well hey I, I love that i love hearing that story I, you know the, the imagery to me is is as as you'll hear in my other podcasts and, and here it's it's equal almost equally important as the music to me i think it all really goes together so, you know, with that, I'd like to take a, a listen to the next track that, that I wanted to, to play here today, and it's by the Australian band, Even As We Speak. Uh, it's great. I mean, they're still going. They released an album last year on Shelf Life Records, which which I thought was, was really, really good. It's fabulous, isn't it? It is. Uh, the track that we're going to hear next is called Falling Down the Stairs, and it can be heard on their only LP that they did for Sarah. And with that, let's give Falling Down the Stairs a listen. process for some of the releases particularly on the on the music side I guess is really where I'm focusing right now and there are others other releases or other bands that you stayed a hundred percent away from are there any artists or release that you feel that that you and Matt had the greatest impact on mm, it's interesting this one because I don't think we were massively involved in the creative process or 
and the bands may feel differently but <laughs> I think our main involvement really was as I guess what you'd call gatekeepers so we wanted to pick the songs that went on records I suppose <laughs> that was the key thing or if a recording didn't come out the way everyone had hoped it would then we would stick our oar in as well um but we certainly you know were not at all involved in the songwriting process or anything mm -hmm. like that there are there are a couple of tracks where matt played a tiny little like he played a little keyboard line in um actually it might have been quite a big keyboard line in when morning comes to town but mm. uh, by the field mice but that was really just we were in the studio so we tended to go into the studio with bands who hadn't been in the studio before um once the label was up and running because by that point we knew a little bit more than they did mm -hmm. um and then with most of them we tended to stop going in the studio with them when it got annoying for them having <laughs> us around um i mean i think there's a couple of bands you could think of where their material left to their own div devices would have been more diverse than the image that was portrayed through what we chose to release Mm -hmm. And I think the field mice are one of those. I mean, I think the field mice would have around the time of the keeps very happily um, spent three months in the studio writing and, and doing kind of soundscape type stuff. And we were probably very keen to prevent that and to have, you know, a really clear idea of what the songs were and how much it was going to cost us to record <laughs> and that the songs were complete and that they'd worked them out beforehand and all of that. So that, um, you know, I think on a different label, they might have had more scope to do more um, strange experimental things that were maybe less song-based. Mm -hmm. I think probably the other answer to this is is brighter where, and I learned this in, in or thought about it differently after reading Pop Kiss, but I, we very much selected their slower songs which we thought were more distinctive and unusual and I think in doing that and overlooking their faster songs which are also brilliant for recording this sort of brighter sound was created that didn't didn't represent the whole scope of what the band wanted to do mm -hmm. um so I think and we were in the studio um quite a lot with brighter because they were reasonably new to the recording process i mean I, I guess we tended to sign most of the bands from demo tapes so some of them you know hadn't really left the bedroom at, at the point where um, <laughs> we said hey make us a record and in a few cases we went back to original demos and released them where um sort of second attempts at recording just hadn't quite captured the magic even if the studio was maybe a little bit bigger so um, yeah yeah I'm, I'm i'm familiar with that so you know that we we with with shoestrings we we did some tracks that that didn't end up on their first album and i was on one of them and they wanted to add an intro and because i was playing drums the intro didn't work with with the the the, the full song so they used a a different version and i always love that that original version with the drums and maybe i'm partial because yeah. i played on it but um i always i always love that and i you know I, I i get that magic that that can happen and sometimes when you get in that studio environment it's there's a sterility to it 
that isn't necessarily creative. It's more about, it's more like a tool, I guess. Mm, and I think, I mean, I'm sure there were occasions as well where having me and Matt in the studio was probably unhelpful rather than helpful <laughs> as well. Because it's like, you know, we don't necessarily know the bands that well. It's, you know, we may be putting them off or whatever. So um, who knows? So. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I just I, I just wondered, you know, how, how you guys factored into that creative process. That's really interesting. You know, another thing that I that I came across, and, and obviously it's it's online, so everyone has seen it, but I wanted to get your take on it. So, you know, obviously during the during the years that the label was was probably the earlier years more so, at least from my recollection, and you mentioned it earlier that you know you got a really hard time by the mostly male music press of the day. And then in 2015, NME comes out with a list of the greatest indie labels, and you're number two to four AD. <laughs> so I said, I wonder. Still, still bitter. Yeah, I'll bet. I'll bet. <laughs> so, you know, I guess, I, and obviously, you did have you did have champions within that 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 music journalism. Bob Stanley was was obviously a yes, a, you know, very supportive. John Peel, of course. And you mentioned this earlier, but maybe we could just expound on it in terms of of the journalism themselves. But why do you think they just they they didn't they didn't connect with you guys, but yet they connected later? That's really, I guess, what I'd like to know is what yeah. what changed. It's interesting because someone had sent me on Twitter the link to the, I think it was a top twenty greatest indie labels of all, you know, and I thought someone must have sent it for a reason I guess we we're in at 19 or something which would have been fine you know <laughs> um so I, I scanned through 20 to 11 oh, oh we're not in there and then I started scanning <laughs> up and I was I have to say because of the you know because of the press we'd had for years I was utterly gobsmacked to be at number two in it and um obviously feel quite vindicated uh <laughs> as well as bitter about 480 <laughs> um, I genuinely to have to this day have no idea who put that list together and, you know, if there was some sort of consensus arrived at or if it was one person or, mm -hmm. you know, um, or, or what was behind it. But it, it you know, it's kind of nice. It can't be taken away from us. So if, you know, when you're trying to explain to people occasionally, oh, you used to run a record label. That's a bit weird. Anyone I've heard of? Oh, no, not really. But, you know, at least people can understand that bit. But mm -hmm. so but you're right. I mean, we did have the first 10 singles we had something like, oh God, we must have had half a dozen singles of the week across the three music papers or across um, Enemy and Melody Maker. So we did have some really good press and some really good support. And I think, oh, I don't know what happened really. I think some of the people who've been supportive moved on, like, you know, Bob Stanley obviously started doing some editing and things like that and stopped writing for the weekly press. But I think there was also an extent, so we were quite combative with the press. Mm -hmm. So we would send quite obnoxious press releases to them. <laughs> we were kind of kids really in Bristol. And I think an awful lot of it works on, you know, you're flicking through a pile of records, I guess, and you know people and you don't want to slag off the people you know. Mm -hmm. But we were off in Bristol and no one knew us, so it never mattered to slag us off. Mm -hmm. um, but the label seemed to develop an image that I don't think it was ever really true. I mean, when we put out the first Heavenly single, which was Sarah 30, the local kind of arts paper in Bristol reviewed it as, you know, yet another Sarah record with yet another female singer. But it was our first record with a female lead vocal. <laughs> um, so you think, how have we got this image? And um, 
then we got to the point of lots of things getting reviewed as you know unlike every other sarah record this one's quite good mm-hmm. so it just kind of became a pastiche of people who really just wanted to make a point through singles reviews and you know the uk music press the weekly press was always about being fun and being a little bit um what's the word it never had anyone really on a pedestal or it pretended to not have people on pedestals but i think with us because it was so relentless it really did move from you know poking fun to real genuine bullying and some Mm -hmm. of some of the reviews are really nasty and there is an an undercurrent of well no there's not even an undercurrent it's blatant of of homophobia and and sexism running running through the whole thing frankly and you know Hmm. i don't know i think everybody did it because everybody else did it and we're told occasionally that you know the people in the in the you know magazine officers who who liked us then got teased for liking us so then Jeez. people got afraid to stick up for us so um so you know and then john peel i well john peel's always liked an underdog i guess I, but also probably didn't pay that much attention and i think he you know to the to the reviews but if he did pay attention he'd have probably you know stuck up for us and therefore um therefore carried on playing us so he was a huge support and you know i think every we think every seven inch got at least one play off john peel which just meant people knew it was out mm-hmm. and you know some of them got loads more obviously the ones we really liked but i think he he acknowledged and played everything once and at least once and and that just you know without that i think would have been doomed given the attitude of the press really yeah you know being on this side of the pond obviously we were we were uh, we we knew at least I knew of the the Peel sessions and and I was aware of that but because we we couldn't hear them very easily we couldn't really connect to them mm. uh, so, so I guess you know maybe for those of us on this side of the pond or someone maybe who's not as familiar with with John John's show when he had it could you maybe just share why that support from him was so important yeah sure so so he was on Radio One which is you know the mainstream pop. Um, BBC station here and for my my childhood sort of older childhood and the early years of Sarah he was on 10 till midnight um, Monday to Thursday and it was quite an eclectic program and he was just such a lovely broadcaster so sort of gentle and understated and not trying to make any you know great point in in a sort of world of celebrity DJs he was almost like the anti celebrity and he just loved music and so most people who were into any form of non-mainstream music would be listening to John Peel whenever they were home I mean I guess the other bit to that though is you know if you were out at gig a few people had complicated systems with VHS recorders and things (laughs) set up to listen but generally speaking if you'd gone out you know um, for most people you'd either shove a C90 in any way out, which would probably have run out by the time his show started, or you'd just miss it. So you'd, you'd listen when you were at home. And if you weren't home, you know, that was that was gone. So, um, but every year he did a festive 50. So re- readers, listeners rather, would vote for their um, favourite three records of the year. And then he would manually compile a chart of them all and, and play the 50 over over um, over the sort of Christmas period. Um, and you know the show got bumped around by the BBC and stuff like that, but um, 
but yeah, it was, it was, yeah. I, I think because it was so eclectic as well, there was, I mean, for most people, I think there was always stuff you liked and always stuff you didn't like. Um, but you heard quite a broad range of music. Yeah. And, and I, I think, you know, that that's really what I've heard about the show too. And, and I think you said it best is that you would, you would listen during that show and there would be things that you were like, Oh boy, it's just, you know, get this, get this one on and move on. And then you'd hear something that, you know, may change your life. And, you know, I think, I think the fact that you were a part of that and that, that he included Sarah and Sarah releases in that really played a big role. I mean, it, it probably helped to balance out some of that negative press that you guys were, exp- oh, it, it did oh, <laughs> level absolutely. out some of that. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And he had, um, I'm not, I think Matt's fanzine as well, but he, he would do things like plug fanzines. So, you know, some of my early fanzines, he'd read out your address and say 720p off and, and that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, I mean, his support made all the difference to us. And then you mentioned the sessions as well. So um, because it was the BBC, they used to get bands in to record four songs in a day at Made of Ale Studios and they'd broadcast... I, don't, I can't even remember. Would they broadcast one session a night, sort of one new one and one old one? I can't I can't even think. But <laughs> various of our bands were fortunate enough to go and, and do sessions for him, which meant you got four songs broadcast and then they'd get a repeat at some point and you'd earn some money from them as well. So um, so it was great to have that support too. And, and obviously for the bands, you know, you might grow up dreaming of being top of the pops, but you also grow up dreaming of doing a John Peel session. You know, so, yeah, for um, sure. Which which does which does really lead me to my next the next track we're going to hear and and I believe the field mice did do a, a peel session and I th- I think it's pretty they hard do. to find. <laughs> I think there's some uh, there's some classic tracks on there if I remember correctly. What what we're going to hear next is uh, is really the first single they did they did for Sarah which you mentioned earlier which was uh, the Emma House single. I love it. It was it was one of my introductions to the field mice released in 1988. And I was doing some research and I found that it reached number 20 on the UK independent chart, which I think is really, really cool. So let's take a moment and hear the wonderful Emma's House by the Field Mice. one incidentally where the released version was the original demo as that's opposed what i to read the i read that in studio. yeah because i i think i read or i watched i don't remember where i saw this but that it was that magic where the magic was on the demo but when you get into the studio maybe it, it, it lost a little bit of that or it was missing yes yeah i don't in a way you couldn't really put your finger on so the other tracks on the record are the ones we did second time around but emma's house itself was the demo version yeah, I remember reading too that that Bobby had 
I don't know, it was a head cold or you had congestion. And, and I didn't realize that until I, I heard that. And then I listened to it again and I'm like, I can hear it in his voice now. He's got a stuffed nose. Uh, okay. <laughs> you know more than I do. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember where I read that at, but yeah, I'll have to check that one out. Uh, so, you know, those, those that are familiar with the label know that you and Matt, and we talked about this earlier, really represented the ultimate in DIY. I mean, you were 19, you guys were, were young, but you know, you, you said we're, we're going to do this and, and we're going to press along the way we're going to do it. We're going to make our own sleeves and we're going to source our own vinyl and all that, all that non-glamorous record label, uh, activities. I guess, is there something about the label that, that you enjoyed the most? And then let's look at the flip side of that and say, was there something that you just loathed that you just knew had to get done, but you didn't <laughs> want to do it? Oh, good questions. Um, I mean, I guess a lot of what we enjoyed was the variety of it because it was the two of us and we had to do everything between us. Although there were probably undoubtedly things that neither of us really wanted to do and someone <laughs> had to. Um, probably the thing we enjoyed most and this probably sounds a bit weird but we used to do a lot of mail order and because we both grew out of fanzines um we were both in the habit of writing letters to people and and, you know the modern equivalent to this would be um, message boards or facebook or whatever wouldn't it but um getting to know people through the post um through a shared love of music Mm -hmm. and sarah used to get you know we'd get the letters that said please can you send me the new record here's two quid uh, please can you send me the next 10 here's 20 quid whatever it was we'd get those but then we'd also get some people who wrote more detailed letters and you know we'd probably reply in kind and they'd reply in kind and some people became friends through that process so um getting those letters getting that post bag um you know every morning or you know sometimes we'd go away and we'd come back and we'd, we'd go and collect it in later years we had a po box to keep the address of it more secret and you know you get a whole sack full of stuff and I, I, no reason why anyone should have done this but sometimes when people would send us presents and things i mean it was just <laughs> lovely i mean we've both got a bit of berlin wall that someone sent us after it came down in 1989 and and it's just like you know your city's being um, turned back into one city having been divided and you're thinking of us as you have to get off the wall and, and send it to us so you know just absolutely fantastic so so I guess that was that was the best no that was one of the best bits the other best bit was um, you know wading through the pile of demo tapes and I, I guess you start all idealistic and we're going to listen to all of everyone and we're going to reply to everyone and and you know sadly that didn't last very long because you could kind of tell within three seconds but finding that new demo that is just absolutely amazing um so that you know and then whichever of us heard it getting the other one in the room and going have a listen to this Mm. oh wow you know that uh, i mean those moments probably came a couple of times a year but they're absolutely fantastic and then in terms of what loathing i mean i guess you know we were young and idealistic the bands were young and idealistic and we didn't always see eye to eye so I mean I think that's difficult at any age but perhaps more so at (laughs) you know younger age and less life experience and um, so that I mean that could be really difficult and you know not just for us but for them as well Um, so that's probably and then a lot of it was just boring to be honest I mean we yeah. spent an awful, an awful lot of my late teens and early 20s were spent holding bits of paper and half <laughs> huge amount <laughs> y- you know you'd make 
4,000 copies of four seven-inch singles at the same time and have to fold 16,000 bits of paper to make the sleeve and then oh. the inserts and then oh uh, and then put them all in plastic bags. So you'd just spend hours and days doing that or going to the post office with a load of mail order, you know, every day. So, um, so mixed, mixed. I mean, did you and Matt were the only ones who did that throughout the entire life or did you ever have any help? We were the only ones who did it. Um, there was, I mean, there was probably a couple of years where we thought really hard about trying to get someone else in, but, you know, the, the question always came down to who, because um, <laughs> it really had to be someone who, you know, would live it and care about it. And, and oh, I don't know, who wants to go and work for a couple who live and work together? And uh, so the answer to everyone, everything was always to work more hours or, you know, after we had those four seven inch singles at once four thousand copies of each the next thing we did was start doing the sealed sleeves so we didn't have to fold them in half anymore so you know that kind of thing sarah existed in in, in the pre and what i consider the pre-internet world i mean there wasn't yeah. there, there wasn't any websites or i mean emails were very exclusive most people didn't have them but now obviously it's completely different in, instant downloads infinite information how do you think Sarah would have gotten along had there been the internet like there is today? I honestly don't know, you know, because it's such a different world. I mean, so, so much of what we did was about the post. It was about writing letters, receiving tapes through the post, sending stuff, you know, spending time in the post office. Um, we didn't even have a telephone when we started the label. Um, you know probably for the first couple of years actually so um you know we used to hitchhike and things like that as well i mean it's all in, entirely mad so <laughs> i just think it would be a it would be an entirely different activity and i think that would make it an entirely different label um mm -hmm. so i mean it's really hard to say because i guess recording techniques and things like that have changed so much as well and the yeah, there's a lot. Just yeah. everything about it would have been different. You know, our, our seven-inch single stance was very much linked into the technology at the time and the point about CDs at the time in 1987 being that they were luxury expensive items and a way of getting you to rebuy records you already owned and they had a high profit margin and they were you know easy for us to use as a kind of symbol of capitalism and the seven inch single being you know affordable pocket money mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. being the kind of you know for the people for the masses um and fitting in with the sort of fleeting nature of or at the time we thought fleeting nature of pop <laughs> singles um here we are 35 years later or however long it is so I just don't think it translates because a vinyl single now represents something quite different and has a sort of nostalgia about it. And, you know, obviously your vinyl albums, you're heavyweight, more expensive than your CDs and your mm -hmm. CDs, your sort of cheap disposable version, if you like. So sort of, yeah, I think it would be so different. It's it's quite hard to say what it would be yeah. like, really. As I'm sitting here thinking too, it's really, I mean, it's really flipped because, you know, for, for the masses streaming and, and downloading yeah. was really, is really the more affordable, I guess, avenue to hear their artists and, and really purchasing the physical 
in 2021 is is more of the luxury which is which is really interesting it's completely flipped with with the internet <laughs> mm. and then there's a bit of a question around the downloading side is well what is the role of your record label and i think that's changed as well mm-hmm. and suddenly uh, you know outlets for promotion and things are, are changed and not being in the music industry anymore to the, to the degree to which i was ever in the music industry but you know um i think just a different ball game really yeah i, I spoke to um to mark robinson of teen beat and we were we were oh, talking yeah. about this and how you know the the the, the label system and, and how it really gave you a reference as to you know maybe someone that you would you would like to hear and and you could easily go to in his example you go to teen beat and you could order and you knew what you were getting but in today's world, you really have to work a little harder, I think, to find, uh, you know, releases that you like. Like, like for instance, I, I didn't even the, the new Mount Misery album that that um, I think Mark Dobson's label put out. I hadn't oh, yeah. even heard of it, and then I got a copy of it. Just someone just gave, here, you'll like this, and I just I love it. But I would have never probably found it if it weren't for that. Yeah. So no, I think you're right because on the one hand, you've got access to kind of everything, haven't you? Mm-hmm. but nobody's got the time for everything or if you people got this so where you know where do you start and i mm-hmm. think for us you were very much at whatever point in time you got into music it was very it was quite hard to go backwards as well mm-hmm. you could only really go forwards whereas now if you're kind of growing up now you can go back to any point in time and it actually doesn't really matter which point in time it was as well but mm-hmm. that does mean there's so much out there it's quite hard to to know where to start in a way isn't it yeah you have to definitely work harder so mm. you know politics and feminism you know have, have and, and obviously not the same thing but have have played always played a part of the label uh, and and i guess from my perspective it was it was probably from what i saw maybe a little bit more earlier on but obviously it went throughout the the entire the entire catalog but but while I was listening to it and I was just really preparing for this, a lot of the acts and the music isn't overtly political. So, you know, was that was that a conscious decision to to be involved from a political standpoint and a feminist standpoint, or is that something that just really more so evolved over time? So it was a conscious decision to be political and to be feminist. I think maybe the decision to be feminist sort of followed a bit when we realised we had to be feminist, if you see what I mean. So, mm-hmm. you know, once we got a telephone, people would ring up and I would answer and they'd say, could I speak to the person who runs Sarah Records? <laughs> and you think, yeah. And obviously kind of treating me as a as a receptionist and <laughs> assuming it wasn't me. And I think I was young enough at the point we started the label where I hadn't, you know, I hadn't done anything outside of education. So I hadn't really realised I would get discriminated against. And mm-hmm. that became increasingly apparent as we as we run the label. So I think the feminism kind of developed in response to that. The politics was very much about the DIY culture and trying to run a le- record label that worked for the record buyer. So, you know, things like when we did compilations, Um, we never put an unreleased track on to you know Mm -hmm. we never wanted everyone to have to buy things twice what we wanted to do was be fair and reasonable and price things decently and you know we never really wanted to delete anything we deleted things when it didn't feel like there was enough demand to justify a a repressing and of course you know in pure storage terms and money terms you just can't keep everything available forever so Mm -hmm. um you know so we didn't do limited editions we didn't do um numbered vinyl or colored vinyl you know and the world has moved on obviously and we 
we lost that argument. So we weren't, I mean, it sounds a bit daft with where the label's at now, but I mean, we were certainly never trying to create anything collectible. It was always all about the music and as many people hearing it as possible. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we've ended up as this um, very collectible label and, and we never, we really never ever wanted to be that. <laughs> you know, the idea that people have bought records and not played them because they're valuable just makes me want to cry because it's just oh. like, you're supposed to listen to it. Well, I listen um, to them. <laughs> <laughs> Good. So, I yeah, I mean, I think, I don't, for me, it was, I think we got more overt about feminism as, as time went on because the subtle approach didn't seem to work and it just seemed to need saying. So, for instance, um, you know, we never used women as decoration on record sleeves. A couple of mm -hmm. the sleeves have got women on the front where they're, you know, part of the band or whatever. But, you know, the cliche at the time was, here's a cool looking 60s chick. And you'd go, well, why is that appropriate? You know, but <laughs> nobody spotted it till really till we started talking about it. Um, mm. They just assumed we did that. So so some things we got more but You're right. Not that much of the music was overtly political. Um, we put out, there was a tax in the UK that was introduced in sort of, I don't know, 1988, 1999 called, 1988, 89 called the poll tax. And we put out the first anti-poll tax record, but because it's a beautiful pop song by the Orchids and the, mm -hmm. one of the really unfair things about the tax was it came in a year earlier in Scotland than the rest of the tax. Um, no one noticed we'd done it really because, um, you know, people expect their political music not to sound lovely i think a lot of the time so I, I i think in an ideal world we'd probably have put out more overtly political records but um you know you <laughs> you can't really say to bad awkward you go and write us a song about um you know the factory government or whatever they they write what they write don't they so we were both huge mccarthy fans i don't i don't, mm -hmm. I don't know if you're a fan of that band but you know songs like red sleeping beauty which seemed to, to you know i i think it's a rare record that can be overtly political and a brilliant pop song at the same time. And I think we were lucky to get to put a couple of those out, but there aren't many in the world really other. Mm -hmm. It's really funny because I can't, I can't picture going to a band or an artist and say, okay, we're looking for, you know, a song about poll tax. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. We might have stuck our oar in a bit in recording, but in terms mm -hmm. of songwriting, really, you've got to let, um, yeah. You've got to let the bands write about what inspires them, don't they? And when you're you're um, young, as you know, one of the things about the label and one of the reasons we stopped when we did is that we and the bands were all very much of an age. Um, in particular, I was, Matt's a little older, but, you know, at the point where the band started getting more than three or four young, years younger than me, you, you kind of, mm -hmm. for us, started thinking, well, do we want to be these older people with, you know, working with these kids? But... I think if you're looking at people writing records in their teens and early 20s, they're probably going to be about broken hearts, aren't they? Really? <laughs> so, um... You're exactly right on that. <laughs> you know, so I, I, we're, we're going to take a listen to another track here from a band that I, I don't I don't believe was, was very political, and that was Blue Boy. Uh, you know, I, I considered them one of the most complete acts on Sarah in terms of, you know, songwriting, musicianship. I just think they, they really had it all, and one of my favorite tracks by them is meet Johnny rave. And it was the lead single, the lead track from Sarah 74 it came out in 1993 and I'd like to give a, a quick listen to meet Johnny rave by blue boy. Mm -hmm. 
listen to all the time, by the way. Like, it's on constant. Luckily, okay. I have the CD single of that one. So uh, I listen to that one all the time. <laughs> so oh. I'm going to argue that Blue Boy were a bit overtly political. Okay, in and what way? their first single, Clearer, is mm. the only Sarah 7-inch where we printed a lyric sheet as the insert. Mm, you're and right. we did that because it's... Um, because of the content of the lyrics basically and, and Keith mm-hmm. never wanted to be a spokesperson but it's a really beautiful song and, and it's a song about um, I suppose really about um, homosexuality being to some degree made illegal in the, mm. in the 80s and 90s hmm. you know you're right now that, now that you say that yeah for sure and, and was that the only single that had a lyric sheet that was the only one that had a lyric sheet hmm. yeah Interesting. Uh, so, you know, it's been it's been 34 years, uh, you know, after the first release. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm a huge champion of the label. I, I, I've I've exposed my 18 year old daughter to the label and people I know. And, and I guess from your perspective, what what would you recommend a new listener start with to best understand Sarah's ethos and, and really to maybe boil it down? And I know this is hard, but boil it down to like one track that if I played it for somebody, they would say, oh, I get it. Oh gosh, one track. It's hard. Um, a couple of things. Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to suggest the There and Back Again Lane compilation mm. because it's a sort of spectrum of the label, but true. Um, I think it's 23 tracks. So, so that's a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> I wonder if one track and ethos, I would recommend then um, another Sunny Days, Anorak City. Oh, yes. And I mean, we always hated the whole anorak thing in the same yeah. way as we hated the whole twee thing. It's it's all meant to be disparaging, isn't it? And mm-hmm. um, but anorak cities um, a sort of fast, frenetic, um, recorded from a demo tape, pressed onto a flexi. But it's all about the sort of instant throwaway pop music, albeit it stood the test of time. And it's not about you know. Um, five weeks in a recording studio at a million pounds an hour so mm-hmm. I, I think that's probably the Sarah ethos and that track sums it up quite well i would agree i i would agree completely and and you know i, I still see just the the term anorak used on facebook groups and so i mean it, it i think you're right i think i think that's it yeah hmm. it's been sort of re-embraced anorak hasn't it i mm-hmm. think but mm-hmm. yeah it was never it was never meant as a compliment uh you know i guess you know as as we kind of wind down this discussion which has been absolutely fantastic you know we're going to talk a little bit about really more the end excuse me the end of sarah and and you know in the in the advertisements for a day for destroying things uh you and matt famously printed we don't do encores and and that's always stuck with me and and obviously matt went on to do uh shinkansen and and all kinds of other creative projects that, that it's always stuck with me and it really begs i guess the question have you ever wished you would have continued oh that's an interesting question i don't think we have mm-hmm. but that said it was an incredibly hard decision to stop or it was a hard it was a, it was a reasonably easy decision to stop but it was actually really hard to follow through and actually mm-hmm. do it um <laughs> because it was our lives mm-hmm. and um, it was also our income. Um, 
So, um, and it was, you know, people are often surprised by this, but it, I mean, it was, we weren't living in any sort of lap of luxury, don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. but I mean, it was a fairly successful business and in many ways. And so to tear it up and throw it away, um, oh, the cat's come to school. <laughs> um, was a very difficult thing to do. And it was a very difficult thing to tell the bands about as well, because, um, you know, many of them were expecting to record new records for us. Mm-hmm. But the way we looked at it at the time, you know, we looked at how other record labels ended and we'd never wanted to be like other record labels. But, you know, the options that we could see were um, you make some bad decisions and go bust. Um, you know, you gradually start putting out more and more rubbish records and mm-hmm. <laughs> fizzle out because people yeah. stop buying them or you sell out to a major and we didn't want to do any of those things so we had to find a a fourth way that wasn't any of those things and stopping at number 100 and throwing a big party was it and Mm -hmm. I still think it was the right thing to do and I'm really pleased we did it I mean what we obviously didn't know at that point was that however many years it is later now anyone would be remotely (laughs) interested in it and certainly for a few years after nobody was remotely interested in it so I do remember about maybe three years or so after Sarah stopped someone came up to me in in the sort of bar at a gig in London and said said a sentence beginning didn't you used to be and I just remember (laughs) thinking yeah I did used to be someone and now I'm not really I'm a trainee accountant as I was at the time I think and you know and and probably in that moment I probably regretted it but um, generally speaking you know it was an incredibly intense eight years Mm -hmm. Um, we lived and worked together I finished my degree during it and, and towards the end I started working at our distributor as a sort of you know next step into the whatever the next thing might be mm-hmm. but um you know the eight years themselves were incredibly intense and I, I i just don't think we could have kept it up any longer yeah. not not with and i know again not everybody agrees with us and i wouldn't expect them to but the level of quality control and the difficulty that could create when bands wrote or recorded something we didn't like and didn't want to put out i mean it it we didn't always tread an easy path. Mm-hmm. No, that, that um, makes apologies sense. if you can hear purring. By the way, <laughs> no, I have, I have to make sure. Is it a male or female cat? It's a female cat. She's called okay. Bella in the tradition of all pets in rescue centers mm, um, have, in I'll London give, over the last decade. I, I want to make sure I credit Bella for you know a small speaking part near the end of the interview. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, I guess kind of piggybacking on, and this is really my my last question is. I'm also not one to really look back and, and, you know, I think you make decisions and, and in most cases, you know, you live with them and and you move forward the best you can based on what you know. And I think those are the experiences and the decisions that really make us. But I wanted to ask you if if there was one thing you could go back on during those, you know, seven, eight years of Sarah and maybe change or modify, what would it be? So I, I was thinking about this and I've got a couple of answers to it. And one answer is we were offered the opportunity and, you know, it may have been offered to other people as well, but we were offered the opportunity to put out the first Galaxy 500 single tugboat. Whoa. And we thought the B-side wasn't up to it. So we said no. Oh. And perhaps, you know, the A-side is just oh. my favourite ever record. So whilst I 
and I haven't listened to the B-side in some time, I have to confess, so I don't, but, you know, so our ethos was every single track had to be absolutely brilliant, but, oh my God, I wish we put out Tug Baby, oh. Tug Baby by Galaxy 500. So that's one answer. I think the other answer is uh, uh, maybe a little bit more philosophical, but I think, you know, we were running the label, we were quite young, we were probably, you know, we were very inexperienced in life, I mean, and I think there were times when, you kind of look back and wish we'd had a bit more empathy for some of the bands and some of the things mm-hmm. they were dealing with as well. And they were also, you know, really young, but, um, you know, they were out in the big wide world a bit more than we were because most of them were working or um, doing something other than sitting at home, folding bits of paper in half. So I think, you know, you, you, you do look back and you think, you know, could we have been more understanding about, or, you know, I, my God, I would handle that differently now. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope, you know, I had, I had a question it didn't make the final cut, but I think you answered it. And it was, are there any bands or acts that you passed on that you, you know, wished you wouldn't have and went on to have huge success. And I would say galaxy 500 fits <laughs> that one. <laughs> well, we did also pass on the Manic Street Preachers. And oh, again, wow. I'm sure they sent it to many people, but um, I have to confess it took until a design for life for me to fall in love with them. So, sure. um, wow. So yeah, there were, there were, there were a few that became successful that sent us tapes, but as I say, they probably sent them to many people and, we i mean maybe this is another regret in a way that once a you know i wish we could have given more success to some of the bands who are so brilliant Mm -hmm. and who really deserved it and in some cases you know we would have needed to do, do things differently they would have had to do things differently as well to some degree but um you know we always just wanted to sell as many records as possible and um arguably there were more records to be sold so (laughs) i wish we could have had that um that success of getting more of the music heard by more people yeah yeah you know and and it goes back to really my original point with the question is you really you only know what you know at the time and obviously the focus was putting out quality track after quality track after quality single and so on and you know at the time that's what you thought you did so it's hard to go back and, and regret those things or, 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 you know, wish you could obviously some things you wish you could have done differently, but I completely understand that answer. And that was, that was really good. <laughs> so I guess, I guess my, my final question here is just more about you. So, you know, after Sarah dissolved and, and went out in a bang in 95, maybe just take us through a little bit about what, what you've been up to. Yeah. Well, I'm the, um, Ooh, I guess I'm the ultimate person you don't want to meet at a party, but then you, <laughs> you leap to a conclusion. So I, I went off and I worked for our distributor for a little while and then I worked for um, Caroline Records for a little while and started getting called Caroline instead mm-hmm. of Sarah. Um, <laughs> and then I looked, I, I couldn't really quite get on for working with other labels and I couldn't quite see where my life was going to go with it. And I, I looked back and I've got um, maths exams and an economics degree. Mm-hmm. And so I went off and, and trained as an accountant. So, um, and yeah, we're one of those, we're those people, people like to put in a box and assume we're all really boring. So <laughs> sometimes I get to freak people out when they realise that I wasn't always an accountant. <laughs> and, um, I can be a little bit creative in ways they're not quite expecting as well. But so I, I moved into working in the charity sector in 
2013. So I work in nonprofits mm, in nice. finance. Very so, nice. Yeah. yeah. The the ultimate non-creative uh, line of work: finance, yeah. uh, accounting. <laughs> I actually have yeah. an accounting degree as well, so I can oh, I can relate. I enjoy it. I'm you know I'm not I'm not ashamed. I enjoy it. Good. Well, that makes yeah. one of us. But there were some skills that would have been useful in Sarah days had I but done things in the right order. That's true. <laughs> yeah, maybe you should start the record label now, knowing what Ooh. you know now. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, Claire, again, I mean, thank you so much for spending the time. I, you know, you, you were so gracious in, in doing this, and I really appreciate the conversation about Sarah. I don't think you realize, or you probably don't realize, how much these recordings have meant to me and and many others over the years. And I appreciate you taking the time to, to share those memories. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank yeah, you thanks. so much for having me. Absolutely. I really enjoyed absolutely. it. I'm glad. I'm glad I, I did too, quite a bit. So I guess to, to really close off the episode, I wanted to take a listen to really the first single. And we mentioned it early on. Uh, it was uh, the A side was Pristine Christine by the Sea Urchins, one of my all time favorite songs. And, you know, there's a, there's a quote that, that came out of the documentary that, if anybody hasn't seen it and, and is a fan of the bands or is a fan of the label, you have to you have to track it down. You have to see it. You can get it online. Uh, I think you can rent it. And it was the line was that it was the perfect song to start a record label with. And I, I, I completely agree. And I think that nails it. So with that, let's give Pristine Christine by the Sea Urchins a listen. And again, thank you, Claire, for spending the time with me today. Thank you. So to close today's show, I wanted to take one last opportunity to thank Claire for joining me. She didn't have to spend that hour with me talking about, frankly, a record label that's been shut down for 25 years. But the reality is that that label has cemented so much to me over the years, so much to many of the people I know. And if you're on Facebook or Instagram, it really means a lot to a lot of people really from around the world. So to close the show today... We're going to take one more listen to another track from Sarah. When I asked Claire about a track that really defined the ethos of Sarah, she referenced this track. So with that, let's take a listen to the splendid third release on Sarah, originally released as a flexi disc. This is 1988's Anorak City by Another Sunny Day. Thanks again. Thanks again.